Alabama. Uh, as we continue worshiping now through the Word, all right, we've, we've worshiped through song, we've worshiped through prayer, and, and this is just a continuation of worship, so it's not like worship and now we preach, this is not worship, this is worshiping through the proclaimed Word, and what we're doing goes back thousands of years, the people of God have always gathered around the Word of God to, to worship God. In fact, this particular part of our service, uh, you can find very common elements all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 8, which is in the 400s B.C., where the people of God gathered around the Word of God to hear the Word of God read and explained, and in response, they worshipped. In fact, that particular passage, they went on for hours that day, which we're not going to do, but we will go on for a while. Uh, We're always going to preach and teach God's Word with what we call expository preaching or expositional preaching, where we're simply trying to expose what the text says, what the text means, and how to apply the text. We're keeping it simple. We're not trying to Take, okay, I got this really cool idea. If we can get our people to do this, let me find a few uh, Bible passages to fit my idea, and then I can preach my idea. That's not what we're doing. We're, here's the text. This is what it says, what it means, how we apply it. Primarily, we're going to preach through books of the Bible, so we're already praying right now about what book will we start off with. Um, and then sometimes, like this summer, we're going to take a big truth or a big theme and then draw that truth from the, the biblical text. So here's a, a text that teaches this truth. Uh, Here it is. Everybody can see it. This is what it means. This is how we're trying to live it out as one body. Um, We're going to laser in this summer on who we are and what God is calling us to do as the crossing. As God is calling us to live gospel-centered lives and to work together as a family to saturate a city with the gospel, we're looking at some ideas that you were first introduced to by Mark Sellers. If you were at the training session he did at the end of March uh, on missional communities, he talked about our identity. Our identity flows from the triune God. So as God the Father has adopted us as sons and daughters into a family, as Jesus Christ came as the suffering servant and saves us so that we may then serve Him and serve God, and as the Father and Son sent the Spirit, and now the Spirit indwells and empowers us, and the Spirit sends us as missionaries, We see from the Father, Son, and Spirit, we are family, servant, missionaries. So we are a family of servant missionaries. And that's what we're going to look at this summer. So I'm going to to start off today by looking at the idea of servant. All right, Jesus Christ is the ultimate servant, but he saves us. He suffered as a servant to save us and make us servants of God. Uh, Next month, the end of July, we'll look at the idea of missionary, how we go with this gospel message. Um... And we'll, we'll look, I'll, I'll share more of that then, I'm also preaching that now. And then in August, Kendrick's going to take us through what it means to be family. And we've shared with you before, we're a plurality of elders, so there's not just one primary teacher. Uh, we're all going to be teaching and uh, sharing those responsibilities, and you will benefit from that. And we'll benefit from that, because we'll stay fresh, and we won't get burned out from having to preach every single week throughout the year. But uh, let's dig into God's Word, let's look at this aspect of being a servant, and ask God to speak to us this morning. Father, we... We're not just uh, going through these prayers. We're not just saying these prayers because it's uh, a part of the worship service. It's something that you do. It's, it's our confession of our deep dependency on you. God, we, we need you. We need you for life. We need you for breath. We need you for salvation. We need you for hope. We need you every day in this life when we're, we're confronted daily with our brokenness and our failures. We're confronted daily with the attacks of the enemy, confronted daily with the, the attacks of 
of this culture that is bent against you. And yet you call us and you save us and you send us to spread the gospel in this culture. And Father, you do that through your word. And so as we, as we gather around your word as your people, as a family of believers, would you come and speak to us today? Would you speak your truth in such a way that it goes deep into our hearts and it changes us? God, we don't need to hear a sermon by a man. We need the words of God. And so open our ears and our hearts to receive what you have for us. And we will give you all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. As you turn to Hebrews 13 in your Bible, Hebrews 13, or you turn on your app to Hebrews 13, what are we called to do to accomplish our mission? All right, our mission of saturating our city, surrounding, and the surrounding area with the gospel. What will it call us, and why will we do it? Um, and what we'll see through this text is Jesus Christ, the true servant, suffered for our benefit, and he calls us to join him in suffering for the sake of the gospel and an eternal kingdom. And when you understand the call in light of the eternal kingdom that we're going to inherit, we can give ourselves sacrificially with joy, with joy and worship. See this in Hebrews 13, beginning of verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, this letter written by Paul, Apollos, Luke, John, somebody we don't know, ultimately written by God through the Holy Spirit inspiring a man. This letter written to uh, Hebrews who were saved out of Judaism and saved into Christianity to follow Christ. This letter um, written to people who completely understand these Old Testament references of outside the camp, outside the gate, sacrificing animals. We're not Jews, right? So we don't understand exactly what all that means. Um, to understand the book of Hebrews, you really got to know your Old Testament. So to do that, hold your place there in Hebrews 13 and turn back to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16, the third book of the Bible. Leviticus, the book of the Bible, where yearly Bible reading plans go to die somewhere in February. At the end of the uh, book of Genesis, just to get the context of Leviticus, you have God's people in Egypt, which at that time consisted of the 12 sons of Jacob and their families. And they had been brought to Egypt providentially by God. There was a famine, uh, a region-wide famine. Uh, God had raised up Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, to oversee the um, setting aside of food for seven years so that Egypt would have food. And as the surrounding regions ran out of food, they began to come to Egypt to get food. And so you had Jacob's sons coming to Egypt at the end of Genesis to get food. And, and they were invited to stay because Joseph had so much favor in the Egyptian court. They were invited to stay, and they did. And so about 70 people over 400 years turned into over a million of people, millions of people, uh, two to three million by most estimates. And over time, the Egyptians not only forgot about Joseph, but they 
began to fear the growth of the Hebrews. They were like, if these people go revolutionary, we got problems, right? And so they began to enslave the Hebrews. And that's where you come into the book of Exodus, all right? Exodus, they're enslaved. They begin to call out for deliverer. God hears their cry and in mercy sends Moses, the deliverer, all right, very good, to go and lead the people. Ooh, man, get worried. Lead the people out of slavery. Now, if you've seen Prince of Egypt, you've seen the Ten Commandments, we can fast forward a little bit. Uh, they leave Egypt through the plagues. They go through the, the Red Sea. They go to Mount Sinai. They get God's law. This is where we're going to learn to be God's people. We're going to learn who our God is, how to live as God's people in this, this culture that we're going to in the promised land. They make their way to the promised land. They get afraid. They don't believe God. They don't take it. So God punishes them and forces that generation to die out for 40 years. And those 20 and under would go in and take the promised land. And so in the midst of all of this traveling to the promised land and wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, God instructed them to set up camps. At least 18 times over 40 years, they set up camp. They would stay for a long time, sometimes a short time. And so inside the camp is where life would happen. Inside the camp is where they would eat, where they would play, where they would enjoy each other, they would cook, uh, they would also grumble, complain, golden calves would jump out of fires out of nowhere. But inside the camp was where life was good. Outside the camp, you don't want to be there. You don't want to be outside the camp. For instance, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 27 and 28. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried where? Outside the camp. Very good. Outside the camp. This audience participation part of the program. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire, and he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. Into the camp. Flip a few pages to Leviticus chapter 13. Leviticus 13 is a great chapter on leprosy. You can uh, read it and learn all about the sores you have on your body and if they're leprous. But in verse 45 and 46, um, it says, A leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lips and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And then chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. Chapter 24, verse 13, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him outside the camp, is where that kind of thing took place, capital punishment. And so, outside the camp is where the dirty things happen, the despised things happen, the disgusting things happen. It's where they, they uh, took care of all their human business that they had to take care of, um, excrement and so forth, waste products, sewer, all that took place outside the camp. Um, outside the camp is where everything disgusting, despised, dirty, dangerous took place. So this is what's in the mind of the reader, the original hearer of Hebrews, as they, they read, they hear that, that God was sending Jesus, Jesus was going outside the camp to suffer and sanctify the people. No one wanted to be outside the camp, but this is where Jesus went. Why? To suffer and sanctify a people through his own blood. Let that sink very 
deeply on you this morning. Whether you've heard it 10 million times, whether you've heard it 10 times, whether you've never heard this before, Jesus went outside the camp to suffer and sanctify a people with His own blood. With His own blood. Jesus came from heaven to earth fully God, took on flesh to be fully man, lived a life not receiving the glory and honor He deserved as King of the universe, but came to suffer, to serve, to humble Himself, to be obedient to the will of His Father to death. Yes, death on the cross. To shed His blood to sanctify people for Himself. Sanctify means set apart. To set apart a people and say, they are mine. They are my people. This is part of what makes us distinct from other religions. To the, to the non-Christian, you may wonder this morning, why all this talk about blood and sacrifice? Maybe even to the Christian, you're uncomfortable because it, it feels so primitive, all these, this bloodiness that's in the Bible. And, and we, we don't shy away from that. It is in the Bible. The Bible is a bloody book. All through Scripture, you see this. Ephesians 1.7, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Hebrews 10.10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Hebrews 10.19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. But for the non-Christian or even the new Christian, why couldn't God have come up with some other way? Why did it have to be through the blood? Why did it have to be through the bodily sacrifice of the Son of God? I mean, why couldn't Jesus have just accumulated nice words or kind acts or jelly beans or gummy bears or like we play on our little smartphone games, you can make tokens and good things happen. Why why couldn't it be something like that? Something non-offensive. We admit, this is part of what makes what we believe seem foolish and nonsensical, but but this wasn't like Jesus, um, something happened to him that he didn't see coming, right? All through the Gospels, he had been saying, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. His own followers didn't really understand that. They didn't understand, you're going to die? Peter was like, no, that's not going to happen uh, through my dead body. Jesus has rebuked Peter. Uh, even when he said, I'm going to rise again, they didn't get that, or else they would have been at the tomb waiting for his resurrection. Jesus himself affirmed why he came. Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. But why? Why did it have to be through His death? Um, We could spend a lot of time on this, but let me go through the short version. God is holy. God cannot sin, right? Any sin is direct, defiant rebellion against the God of the universe, and so any sin cuts us off from a holy God. Well, guess what death is? Death is, in essence, separation, being cut off. And so that's why God says to Adam and Eve in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, if you sin, you will die. You will be cut off, separated from me. And isn't that what happened? They eat the fruit. All of a sudden, they're naked. They're ashamed. They don't want to be around God. They're scared of God. They're hiding. They're covering themselves with the fig leaves. They are cut off from God. God then cuts them off from, from the presence of the tree of life, from His presence and special fellowship by sending them out of the garden. And one day they would be cut off from life on this earth when they would die physically. 
So sin means we are separated, cut off, we die in relationship to a holy God. Now the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 1, we are born in that condition. We are born dead in our sins and trespasses. We are born in a state of being cut off from God, separated from God. God who is holy and just and righteous could have left us in that place of being separated, cut off, but God wanted to also demonstrate to all of creation His love, grace, and mercy. And so He came after us. He came after us. He made a way for us to return to Him. We, His image bearers, He wanted us to be reconciled to Him. And so here's the dilemma. How does a God who is holy, just, and righteous let a bunch of rebellious sinners like us back into fellowship with Him? How does He bridge the gap of death, the bridge of separation between us and Him? Because God is a good judge. He can't just be like, well, no big deal. Uh, You had a bad day. We'll just let you back in. He can't just sweep it under the rug. He can't just dismiss it. He can't overlook it. How does a good, just judge let people like us back into fellowship with him? I mean, if a judge in today's courtroom looked at a criminal who's convicted of a crime and just said, you know what, I'm going to let you go. You're off the hook. Nobody's going to pay the the penalty for your transgression, for your crime. You just go, run along, and have a good life. How long would that judge be on the bench? Right? God is not just a good, just judge. God himself is the definition of right and wrong in all the universe. So how does God remain the good and just judge while also letting us off the hook? You see this dilemma in Scripture, places like Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Uh, The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We love all that, right? God is gracious and merciful and abounding in love and slow to anger and and forgiving sins and forgiving iniquities. Yes, yes, good. We love that. But look at the next part. But who will by no means clear the guilty? What? You just told us that God is gracious and merciful, abounding in love, forgiving iniquities and all these good things. But but how do you say on the other hand, he's not going to clear the guilty? You just told us he was going to clear the guilty. How does he not clear the guilty? So this is a passage that some call the riddle of the Old Testament. How does God resolve this dilemma? Well, what if there was one who could die in our place? What if there was one who would be cut off for us? separated from the Father, forsaken by the Father. And what if this one could represent all of humanity, could, could represent all sinful people in the way that, that we are um, human, so He's fully human, but also He's sinless, therefore He's fully God. And He has a power over death and sin and Satan and, and will be resurrected. That's who Jesus was and is. Fully God so he could live a sinless life, rise from the dead, conquering death, and also fully human so he could stand in our place. And God ordained that he would willingly give his life in a very public way so that everyone without a doubt would know what was taking place. Not everybody would believe, but they would know, here is a man declared innocent by the courts. The only crime he's held guilty of is that he claimed to be the Son of God, which was in fact true and he's killed like a common criminal and all this testimony bore witness to the fact that he was a good man and a righteous man and did good things 
And now all of his followers begin to run around the world saying, he's no longer dead, he's alive. He's got power we've never seen before. So why did Jesus die? Because God is holy and without sin. Sin demands that we be cut off from this holy God, which is death. And only through the death of a mediator who is fully God, fully man, our sinless representative, sinless substitute, could we be reconciled back to God. Therefore, our standing before God is not based on our performance, but is based on the performance of Jesus Christ. Our standing before God is based on who Christ is and what Christ has done. That's the only way we have access. It's not based on what we do. And this is why Jesus had to die. Someone had to pay the price for our sins. And the question you and I have to face this morning is this. Are you trusting and believing in Jesus Christ to atone for your sins? Or are you going to pay for your own sins in eternal separation? Eternal death in a place called hell. That's it. Jesus pays for your sins or you pay for them. And so what is the condition of your belief? What is the condition of your heart? When Jesus came and died, they took him outside of the city to a hill called Golgotha to carry out the dirty, despised act of crucifixion. And why? It tells us that he could sanctify a people. Take a people who are spiritually born outside the camp born dead in their sins and trespasses, born separated from the Creator, born as rebels against God, and redeem them, set them apart, sanctify them, call them mine. They are my people. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here's the deal, guys. When Jesus went outside the camp, He went to where we are to redeem us. And bring us into his family. To sanctify us by his blood. All, we're, all we've looked at so far is, is, is Jesus. Who he is and what he did, right? And what about us? What do we do? Well, we're, we're going to get to that in verse 13. But uh, we want to be very intentional this morning about our worship. As we remember who Christ is. His life, his death, his sacrifice. Um, and we want to do that by sharing together in a very ancient meal called communion, the Lord's Supper. And so uh, we want to do as Paul commanded us to do in 1 Corinthians 11 and 2 Corinthians 13, to examine ourselves, spend time examining our hearts, um, seeing if there is open, unrepentant sin we need to confess and repent of. Maybe there's somebody in this room you need to go to and seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Certainly with God, there are always sins that we need to repent of. And so as we remember and focus our attention right now squarely on who Christ is, what Christ has done, we're going to share in this meal together. And uh, Chris is going to come read a prayer that will direct your hearts to what we're talking about. And then we're going to sing a song. And uh, as you listen to this prayer, as we sing this song, when you're ready, okay, when you're ready, come individually, come as a family, get the cup, Get the bread, return to your seats, and then Scott's going to lead us through partaking of the cup and the bread. But now, just listen to this prayer, and then sing this song, and when you're ready, come and receive the body and blood of Christ. Each week as we share in the Lord's Supper together, we won't always do it like that, where it's in the middle of the proclaimed word. 
but we want to be very intentional before we get to the command of what we do to help us to see, be reminded of the only reason not only we can obey this command, the only reason we even want to obey this command is because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Apart from the gospel, the good news of Christ, we, we don't give a rip about God's commands. We live for our self-glorification. We live for our self-satisfaction. And even once we believe and embrace the gospel, we still wrestle with that. But Christ has come and made it possible for us to not only obey, but to desire to obey. And we don't obey the calls and commands of Scripture to get something we don't have. We obey the commands of Scripture because of something we already possess. We don't obey to be something. We obey because we are something. You'll never hear us say, obey these commands and everything will be good in your life and you'll have your best life now. You'll never hear us say that. Because this passage, as much as any passage says, that that may not be the case. That obedience to God's commands may not mean a good life now. So this, this call to obey, not to get, but because we've been given, this call to go outside the camp in verse 13, to suffer with Jesus, only happens because you've already been set apart, sanctified by His blood. So verse 13 says, um, Therefore let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. What does that mean? The NIV says to bear the disgrace He bore. Another translation says to endure the insults He endured. The message, Eugene Peterson's uh, translation says, So let's go outside where Jesus is, where the action is, not trying to be privileged insiders, but taking our share in the abuse of Jesus. To go outside the camp is to go and be abused and suffer as Jesus was abused and suffered. Suffering in our life with Christ is not only to be expected if you know the Gospels and the, the New Testament epistles, but here it even says We should pursue it. We should go after it. Why? Where? Outside the camp. Why do we go outside the camp? Because that's where Jesus is. We go to Him outside the camp to suffer with Him. So the question for us this morning is, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to go outside the camp? And I think the first way we always understand application in Scripture is, well, what did it mean and how were they living living it out, the the original hearers of this, this epistle? What could it have meant for the the hearers of the book of Hebrews to go outside the camp? Hebrews, of course, as I mentioned, written to a group of believers who left Judaism to follow Christ, were being tempted to return to Judaism. And all through the book of Hebrews, you have the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, saying, don't turn back, don't go back, don't fall away. Keep following Christ. It will be worth it. Keep pursuing Christ. And what you have to understand is that being a part of the Jewish culture in that day and age, and even some parts of the world today, it's not like you you grab your scrolls, you go down to the local synagogue, you sing a few songs, you hear a sermon, uh, and and then you eat a meal, go home, get your recliner, watch football all day. That's not what it meant to be in the Jewish culture in the first century. The Jewish culture, the Jewish religion, being a part of Judaism was an all-encompassing way of life, right? It had to do with how you're born, uh, your education, who you marry, what jobs you had, your weekly worship, your yearly festivals and celebrations, what you wore, what you ate, who you married, how you raised your kids. It was a cradle-to-the-grave, all-encompassing way of life. And so to go to your family and say, 
I'm following Christ and now I'm free from all of that. Well, it would be like if you went to your family today and said, you know what, I've decided to become an Orthodox Jew. So I'm going to change everything about my life. What I wear, my clothes have to be 100% one cloth. Um, the jobs I have, when I worship, it's going to be in synagogues on, on Sabbath day, on Saturday. Um, I'm giving up bacon, uh, pork chops, and, and we would be like, you are nuts. Is that crazy? Who would give up bacon? Right? But that's, that's just crazy. I mean, your family and friends would be like, you're nuts. But think about how much worse it was for them because they're, they're coming out of thousands of years of living like this. And you can see the temptation for these followers of Jesus, how, how easy it would be to go back into Judaism. You're not rocking the boat. You're not upsetting the family and their celebrations and festivals. You're not, you're not uh, making everybody upset with the, the different way you're living your life, the controversial way you live your life. You're, you're just... You're, you're, you're going along with the way you were raised, and to go back against that was, was crazy. And here you have one of the strongest calls and commands, the final strong call in this book, to not retreat. This, this key verse to go outside the camp speaks of continuous action. The believers here were, were needing to publicly identify with Christ and not go back to their safe synagogue way of life but to fully embrace Great Commission Christianity, one author wrote. For them to go outside the camp meant suffering for Christ, suffering for the sake of each other. Uh, you can flip back a couple pages to chapter 10 and look at verse 32, where the writer says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an embodied one. Some of their brothers and sisters were undergoing a persecution that was causing them to be imprisoned, and when these brothers and sisters went to them in prison, they identified with them, and they too were having their property plundered. And they too were suffering. The very beginning of chapter 13, you see examples of what this writer is encouraging them to do. Let brotherly love continue. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's a whole other sermon for another day. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Suffering together for the cause of Christ. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God would judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So a life of sexual purity. Verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the original readers of this letter. But, but let me ask you this morning. What does it mean for us to go outside the camp? What does it look like in our life to go with Christ and bear His reproach? What does it look like for us to give in to the temptation, to stay where it's safe and comfortable, and not go to Jesus outside the camp? Um, Generally speaking, Christians in America all face temptation to just stay focused on America. 
Because it's, well, it's, it's America. And we know it, we love it, we like it. We're going to be blowing up stuff this weekend to celebrate the, our nation and eating a lot of food and having fun. Um, but sometimes we, we put all of our attention on America and we forget about the nations where Jesus told us to go. Go and make disciples in all the nations. And so we, we, we can live missionally here most of the time, but also give our lives, give our money, give our prayers and our attention to the nations because when we gather around the throne of God in Revelation 5, Revelation 7, it's not just going to be Americans. We all know that. It's going to be people from all tribes and tongues and languages and, and nations. So we all face this temptation to not go because it's safe and comfortable here. Um, now, we're not called to be foolish. Like, God doesn't call us to parachute into North Korea and start preaching the gospel. We're not called to be martyrs for the sake of being a martyr, right? We're to be wise. We go within the context of the body of Christ. It helps us make wise decisions and supports us as we go. But at the same time, sometimes our kids will go to college and, and Christ will grab their heart for the nations and they'll come home to mom and dad and say, I want to go serve in India or Africa or China over the summer. And mom and dad's like, you can't do that. that that's not safe. You need to stay here and scoop ice cream all summer. You know, make a little bit of money. And we need to be a people, and, and I can promise you from, from our perspective as elders, we're going to be people who keep pressing us to go. Send. Send your kids. Send your grandkids. Go ourselves. In fact, we, we haven't discussed this, but me and Scott and Kendrick, I have confidence that they feel the same way. If God ever calls us to go, for our families to go, then the crossing is going to send our families to the nations for the sake of the gospel. Because God has an open contract with us. Wherever He wants us to go, whatever He wants us to do, we're going. And God, raise up people, raise up young people that you will send to the nations for the sake of the glory of God. That we won't say, no, you've got to stay where it's safe and where, where things are safe in America. No, no, go, because we trust in a God who's sovereign, if that's what it means to go outside the camp. But that's not the issues we face every day. You see, our, our temptation to be safe and comfortable is not big stuff like that. It, it's everyday it's subtle. It's much more destructive. We're tempted to stay in the camp of comfortable American Christianity. And guys, we already feel that tension in our missional communities. We talk about it all the time. What we're calling us to do, a church that's centered around the gospel, a church that has deep, authentic relationships, a church that lives as a family, that's genuinely sharing life, that's intentional about our mission, a saturated city with the gospel. And we haven't even gotten to covenantal membership and gracious accountability and church discipline you know, that's still to come. Can't we just show up and just sit in the back like most people do? Like, do we, do we have to really have deep relationships? We're friends on Facebook. That's good enough, right? Why do we have to go deeper than that? Um, can't we just let all, the elders do all the gospel sharing? That's their job. I just want to be a church member. Do we really have to get to know our neighbors? You know how comfortable that is to get to know our neighbors? D don't misunderstand me. Um, us as elders, we're tempted. All right, we're tempted just to do this every week because this is easy. It's easy. We got a building. We're not even paying for it. It's been graciously provided by this congregation, by our association, and we could just show up every Sunday, sing some songs, preach a sermon, take communion, give an offering, check the box, we're done. We're a church. You know how much harder it is for us even to put this off because we want to be intentional about being the church every single. Day. So we all face this temptation. We all face this dilemma. But, but let me ask you this morning, 
is showing up in this building each week and having a service going to saturate Monroe with the gospel? Isn't that already being done right now all over our city? And is Monroe becoming more in love with Jesus because of it or not? One pastor told us recently that um, over a long period of time that there, there hasn't been really any church making cultural transforming inroads with the gospel. That all the churches around here do are swap sheep. And you know that. And that's all, in essence, that's all we've done so far. We haven't made deep inroads with the gospel yet. Are we going to get there? Is keeping it to ourselves and living a private Christian life going to see the gospel spread in our neighborhoods and jobs and ball fields? Are we going to bear his reproach and suffer with Jesus outside the camp by continuing to live the, the nice, safe, easy, comfortable Christian life that everybody's living? How can we be a family of servants as missionaries in the city by seeking the safe and the comfortable? We can't. And so I want to ask you this morning, for you, what does it mean to go outside the camp? To suffer with Jesus? That doesn't mean you need to pick something crazy and foolish, right? Um, a lot of you know uh, we recently sold our house. Um, that's a good thing, praise God. It took a long time. But uh, Jennifer and I, going back almost two years now, this is six, seven months before we ever considered planting a church or being a part of a church plant. We felt God lay on our heart a desire to sell our house, move into the city, and start making disciples, right? Uh, little did we know God was preparing us for the crossing. We didn't see that coming at all. Um, and God, um, in his providential wisdom, let it take 18 months for that to happen. And uh, now we're praying about over the next 12 to 18 months as we save up money, where are we going to buy a house? So if I go to Jennifer and say, I think God's calling us to live as homeless people under the bridge in boxes, that's pretty radical. I won't be married any longer. But that's not what we're talking about. And, and don't think we're like super Christians because one thing that we did when God called us to sell our house and move, we checked out of our neighborhood. We don't need to be engaging with our neighbors anymore because we're leaving. And we missed opportunities over the last year and a half to get to the gospel with our neighbors that God has graciously allowed us to, to make up for in the last few weeks. And so what does it mean for you to go outside the camp? What do you need to do differently to suffer with Jesus and bear his reproach? Is it a neighbor you've lived next to for years that you've never invited over for a meal? Is it a co-worker that you've talked to about everything else in all of creation except for the gospel? Is it a family member being destroyed by sin that you need to confront? Is it a friend who continually leads you into sin and you need to look them in the face and with love say, no longer? Is it a place of business that you go to so often that you know them by name and they know you by name and now you need to take the next step? I prayed this week as I've been preparing for God to reveal to each one of you and reveal to me what does it mean to go outside the camp and specifically... What is one step you can take to go outside the camp and suffer with Jesus? And, and what I want you to do is I want you to actually write it down. A little piece of paper in your Bible. We all have pieces of paper in our Bible. You can even write it in the back of your Bible. That's okay. God's okay with that. Type it into your phone. But just as we're worshiping this morning, as God's dealing with you this morning, what is one step you can take 
to move outside the camp in a relationship with somebody, in your job, in your neighborhood, with your family, whatever it is, one step you can go away from the safe and the comfortable to the needy, to Christ, to suffer and bear His reproach. And what I want you to do is I want you to actually share this with your missional community. All right? So now we've got some accountability. At your next MC meeting, you're going to talk about it. What, what did you write down? And then you begin to hold each other accountable, pray for each other, and equip each other to actually obey it. If you want to be really radical, you can share it with whoever you're sitting at the table with at lunch. This is what, this is what it means to go outside the camp for me. How much will we truly suffer? How much reproach will we bear? Well, only God knows. It might be far less than we fear. Often it is. It might be far worse than we fear. That happens too. But that's okay. Because whatever we suffer, it's nothing compared to what's waiting for us. Verse 14. Verse 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. You see, when you see these present sufferings, and this is all through Paul's writings in the New Testament, when you see these present sufferings in light of what's coming, in light of eternity, in light of what we're inheriting, it's not really, it is suffering, but it's, it's nothing compared to the glory and the joy we're going to receive. It's, it's so um, out of kilter, it's so much greater what we're receiving that we can actually willingly go suffer for the sake of the gospel with joy. Like we don't have to, oh man, I don't want to do that. And begrudgingly, all right, I'll go talk to my neighbor. It's not like that. When we see what Christ calls us to do outside the camp, and we see it in light of what he's already given us, I can't wait. I can't wait to go tell people and live missionally and live for the sake of Christ and share my life with these people. If they reject me, if they hate me, if I suffer persecution, that's even better. Because I'm looking and living so much like Jesus that I'm being treated like Jesus was. This is what Jesus talked about from the very beginning of his ministry, Luke 9, 23 and 24. He said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is worth our sacrifice and suffering. Jesus is worth our bearing his reproach. There is something far worse than the pain we suffer for the sake of Jesus in this life, and that's what we miss out on in eternity because we said no to suffering now. Jesus has done all that's needed for us to be able to obey this command. You see this, verse 12, he came and went outside the camp to suffer and sanctify people by his own blood. Verse 14, he's already gone ahead of us and prepared everything for us to receive as a being a part of his family. So all that's left is verse 13. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear his reproach. Let's do this, Crossing Church. Let's go to Jesus. Let's go in joy. Let's go in sacrifice. Let's lay down our lives for our King. Let's be poured out for the sake of the gospel in Monroe and beyond. Father, we just thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice, willingly laying down his life for our sake. And we as a people want to respond in obedience to what he has already done. So come, Lord Jesus, and speak to our hearts. Show us what it means to go outside the camp. Empower us, enable us to be obedient for the sake of your glory. And let us do it with joy 
Because we see suffering in this life in light of eternal joy that you have for us. Bless us as we are obedient. God, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How should you respond this morning? Sing with everything that's in you to King Jesus.